Celebrate the holiday season with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. Join us at the Joseph Meyerhoff Symphony Hall for festive performances throughout the month of December, including Home Alone in Concert, a Cirque Holiday Soiree with Troop Vertigo, and the annual Holiday Spectacular featuring the Tap Dancing Santas. Visit bsomusic.org today to find the perfect holiday concert for you and your family. All December long with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. That's bsomusic.org. To celebrate Slider Sunday all season long, Kings Hawaiian is giving away $1 million in a trip to the big game to one lucky winner. Just go to kingshawaiianshowdown.com to enter to win. Earn more entries by playing fun games, voting on your favorite sliders, and discovering delicious game day recipes. That's kingshawaiianshowdown.com for your chance to win $1 million. kingshawaiianshowdown.com Millions of despairing men, women, and little children Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom, kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everybody into Garden of Doom. And this week we have with us a true academic who's also a pagan. He's a, a professor. And I became acquainted with him through, uh, as is often the case, the Nephilim Anthropology Conference. Uh, he was one of the presenters there, but we're not really going to be talking about Nephilim, or I don't think so anyway, but we might. Who knows? Um, you never know. Anyway, I welcome to the program, and thank you for joining us, Professor Michael York. Good evening or afternoon, whichever, whatever it is for these timelines. Who knows? But uh, all right, I'm going to try to just give a brief uh, summary of my trajectory. Um, I was living in San Francisco during the counterculture days, which uh, anyone who, you ever, if you ever meet anyone from that time, the one thing we all have in common is to say that we 
would never have wanted to miss those days. Uh, my daughter is actually visiting right now. When she found out that she missed the, uh, the Haight-Ashbury experience, she actually cried. Um, so she's been out to the Burning Man experience in Spain, the spinoff, and was just completely at home. So somehow that genetic thing does carry through, which is nice to see. But when I was living in San Francisco, I used to go out into the country just to get away from the, the whole urban complex. And I was so overwhelmed by the stars that I could see in the sky when you were away from any type of uh, city lighting. And I became very intrigued in what did the indigenous people, what stories did they have about these stars? Because they were so overwhelming. And that got me basically interested in the California, the Central California uh, Indian cultures, um, basically centered around San Francisco Bay Area. Um, they were a fascinating, it was a fascinating territory. It had more different languages spoken in that one area after, I think, maybe Java is the only other place wow. that has more different languages spoken. And the thing is that they all got along. They had one kind of a ritual warfare between two tribes in the north where one year one person was killed in one tribe and the next year then one was killed in the other. And that was the extent of their violence, basically. Even though they all spoke these different languages, they shared a certain uh, understanding of of nature, of um, the understanding, let's say, what we would call the divine. Uh, ironically, they had uh, almost no stories about the stars. Uh, they named a few of the, the major constellations that we know, like the Great Bear and so forth. But basically, it was really surprising for me. But what it did for me was to discover this uh, really beautiful culture that my ancestors coming over from Europe uh, basically decimated and, and destroyed it. And I felt a cultural guilt, I suppose. And I thought, well, what do I do? Do I live in a teepee? And I wasn't ready for doing something like that. So I moved to Europe to where my ancestors came from. And that was the Netherlands, at least one part of the family. But what uh, the whole research thing that I had done in California into looking into the uh, Native American traditions, I then wanted to do the same thing with the European peoples. Where did they come from? What were their earliest uh, spiritual outlooks? Uh, what were their, what was their understanding of the divine, the relationship of humanity with the divine, and so forth? And I ultimately wrote what I would call my magnum opus, the divine versus the Assyrian. And, but then to try to get it published was the next big uh, obstacle. And since it was basically an academic book, the only type of a university of press that would consider it would be a university press. And uh, really for them to consider you, you had to have a PhD. So, I went to King's College, London, which had a place in London. It was only five stops away on the underground line. I didn't have to change lines. And I, I, the other alternative would have been 
they go to the Indo-European Studies Department in UCLA. I was not ready to come back to the United States, so I went to King's College. Uh, the director was Keith Ward, and he said, well, that's very interesting, but there's nobody here that could really monitor you. And by this point, I didn't care. I just wanted to get a PhD. I wanted to study religion from an academic point of view. And so I mentioned that. He said, well, you have to see Peter Clark. He's the only one who could possibly accommodate you. So I saw Peter. Uh, I had just read in the Herald Tribune the day before about this new religious movement involving uh, Shirley MacLaine and Jay-Z Knight calling itself New Age. So I mentioned that to Peter, and he just snapped his fingers and said, yes. So basically, I did my PhD, uh, started initially on the New Age movement. As I got more familiar with the whole academic scene and, and how to handle various issues, I expanded it to a contrast between New Age and contemporary paganism. Um, and uh, so that became my PhD. Uh, I graduated, was able to get my book published, and and so forth. But then, of course, it was just at a time when I graduated, and I by this point, um, I was rather it was rather late in life by the time I went and did my PhD. Absolutely loved it, and I would say to anyone, if you're ever thinking of going back into study, it's never too late. And I think it almost becomes more thrilling, satisfying, and exciting as one gets older. You appreciate it from a whole different perspective than at least I did when I, I did love it when I, in my 20s, but it was wonderful when I turned 50. And so, but when I graduated, I then was hooked on the whole academic scene. It was at a time where universities, both in, in America and Britain and probably Europe as well, were having to cut back on the teaching staffs. It was a financial situation. And so it was really very hard to, I couldn't find anything. I went to different conferences uh, and just got to know as many different people as I could. And then at this point, we actually, my partner and I, we moved back to San Francisco, bought a house and came back to Europe just to check on the properties and literally walking out the door of the London flat to go to a farm we had in France. Uh, the phone rang, it was Marion Bowman, and she said, there's a research fellowship available at, at Boston University. It wasn't quite Boston University at, at that point. It was the Boston College of Higher Education. And she said, would you be interested? And I said, well, yes. And ultimately I got that job. Um, and so that I was on that research fellowship. It was probably one of the most ideal jobs one could have. The salary wasn't great, but other than that, I was encouraged to travel. Uh, I didn't have to teach. Uh, I wanted to, and so I actually did do some teaching. But um, I was allowed to go to India, back to the States. Uh, I was on a complete research venue. And so that was really an exciting and thrilling time. But then finally that fellowship was running out. I had a, uh, a PhD student, uh, Nicholas Campion, who was 
was interested in astrology. And what I didn't know that what Nick was doing, it was he was seeing the administrators of the school. He had money behind him, and they wanted to establish a department to for the study of astrology from an academic perspective. And he wanted me to be the director. And ultimately, I got that job, and through that, I ultimately got my professorship. Uh, I was very insistent that we weren't going to try to teach astrology as whether it was real or not, but how people are influenced by their belief in various things with the stars. Uh, for instance, like uh, India, when it became independent, they changed their original date of independence because the stars weren't right. And so it was this kind of thing that I was interested in. Most of the students turned out to be astrologers, and they weren't all that happy from a sociological perspective, trying to look at themselves objectively. But we got through it, and, and that was quite successful. And then it, uh, I turned 65, and that was a mandatory time in Britain at that point that one had to retire. But basically, that's been my, that was my academic trajectory. As far as the pagan thing, um, I got very intrigued with uh, what we would, could call the original pagan outlook and beliefs of the Indo-European peoples uh, from their homeland. They basically split. Some went to Persia and India, and the rest came to Europe. And um, but to try to find a contemporary pagan scene was, I found it was almost impossible. I would go to Stonehenge, to Delphi, to um, uh, the Roman Forum, all these different uh, ancient sites uh, on what I knew were the, the actual uh, key festivals, the solstices, the equinoxes, the Celtic quarter festivals, thinking I was going to run into other people and never did. Hmm. Um, finally, somehow, I don't know exactly how it, how I came across it, but I learned of the House of the Goddess, which was run in uh, Clapham in London by Sean J. Rod. And through her, uh, I was able to then connect with the pagan scene. Um, she agreed to let me study her outfit for my PhD studies. And basically, that's how I expanded within the, the pagan scene. I've written a number of books since um, on pagan theology, pagan ethics, pagan mysticism. Um, I am, have now, I'm still trying to get it published. I've written my memoir. Um, I think we're going to try to do it through Amazon, but I'm not quite sure how to do that yet. So, um, but basically, that's my story. Okay. Well, that is an interesting story with a long and winding tale, and I'm looking forward to hearing about there. It's an interesting thing when you're a podcaster who's didn't really have a, a vision for a show, just knew that you were curious about a lot of things. And you come to certain conclusions, and it turns out that through listening to people and through uh, distilling and curating the information that you get, that you come to certain conclusions. 
to learn that you're probably correct, and then you feel pretty smart about yourself, uh, and then you find out that, well, tons of people have already figured this out, and then you don't feel so smart about yourself anymore because you're not special. Um, but it's very interesting because this is uh, an interesting synchronicity because it's only very recently that I started to suspect that that if we found the root of sort of the first Indo-European language, we would sort of find the, the the original myths and sort of where things came from and and sort of the, the the root of everything and maybe sort of grow from there. Well, turns out lots of people did that. And also one of the other panelists on the um, Nephilim conference, uh, Luke Ironside, um, who... I mean, he's uh, he's like 27 years old, but I'm sure he's a vampire because he's got the wisdom of like a 10,000-year-old person. Um, said, doesn't sound to me like you're looking for the first language. It looks to me, sounds to me like you're really looking for the first shaman. And I'm just like, or shaman. And I'm like, oof, I'm not sure I can get to that one, but at least I have another, you know, semi-mission. Anyway, um, so I'm looking forward to our conversation, but before we get to that and I forget, I have some trivial questions for you, which have almost nothing to do with what we've talked about, except you mentioned that your family is from the Netherlands, and the Netherlands is also known as Holland, and the Netherlands, as I understand it, means the flatlands loosely in English. Yes, yes. Where does the name Holland come from? Because I don't think there was a tribe called the Halls or the Holes. Um, That's a good question. I don't know the actual answer. Holland is there's actually two provinces within the Netherlands, North and South Holland. And so that's, so when we refer to the country as Holland, that's actually incorrect. Um, I think I did know what, what the etymology behind that is, but I can't recall it at this point. The Netherlands is the, you know, the Netherlands, the, where the country is basically below sea level. Right. Um, and it's because they have the, this incredible system of dikes, which is what allows the, the land to be. Uh, we're at the base of the Rhine, so it's really, the country in itself is really a swamp or a marshland. And the Dutch people, um, I mean, this was kind of like a refuge. Nobody else wanted to live here. And so they came in and basically created the country. What's One thing that's fascinating is that the the governmental department that takes care of the dikes is totally independent. It doesn't matter who, which political party is is present at, the, at any time. They just go ahead and do their own thing. Their focus is on the technological uh, skills and needs to protect the country. And uh, so the government doesn't have anything that they can really do to them. They don't interfere. And I, it's a fascinating thing. And the Dutch are so skilled at that that they export their knowledge around the world. And with global warming, it's uh, it's a really an opportune uh, skill that they have acquired that they can export yeah. to many other places. They're going to the be country. busy. Um, well, all right. I'll, I'll continue my search for what the word ha Holland means. But, but understanding is <coughs> that it being synonymous for the Netherlands is is a construction that, that is, it's actually an error, but, you know, maybe it is what it is. 
So right north of the Netherlands is Denmark, which is also a strange name, but I know that Den Denmark used to be called Jutland. Now, that could be because there was a, a tribe called the, the Jutes or Juts, but it could also be because the land actually juts out into the, into the sea like that, but that would be very English, but English, of course, is a Germanic language. So, <laughs> and I know this is not what we were talking about, but while I have you and I have a professor who's <laughs> been there, what, what is the origin of Jutland or Denmark, if you know? Uh, yeah, Denmark, I'm not sure. I mean, the Jutes was a name like the, like the Angles, like the Saxons. The Jutes, it was a, a tribal name. Oh, that's easy. They, okay. Good. They basically settled there, and that's why it's uh, whether the name Jut, because it juts out from the rest of the continent, that might have been derived from them. Uh, that would be uh, oh, something that's interesting. To be curious into. See, these are things that these are this is this is what uh, that makes me curious and things that get me on, on little tangents, which is this one. But let's get back to you and your areas of expertise. And um, I mean, you are the expert on this. You're, you're, so, you know, take us through, you know, sort of what your thesis is or what you're, what you've learned and, and what you want to share with us. And I, I wonder if, if any of it will call back to the North American First Nations and, and any of their beliefs that you um, came to learn. All right. Um, basically, what when I started doing my research into the origins of European-speaking peoples, it was I used a comparative mythological basis along with archaeology. And when you when you compare the languages and you try to see what common denominators there are, uh, and especially when it, when you're dealing with myth, ritual, and I suppose broadly theology. Um, there's a handful of uh, core paradigms, um, and probably the most ubiquitous is the Indo-European uh, word for God, which is Deus, which means light. It's a personification of light. If you look into the... Now, of course, uh, we've been influenced a lot by Hesiod, but Hesiod himself was influenced by the succession myth of the Near East, which you had a father god and a son, and the son overthrows the father, and then the son of the son overthrows that his father, and so forth. Uh, that's an imported idea. That wasn't probably uh, originally an Indo-European idea. For the Indo-Europeans, you start with the Earth, the Mother Earth, Gaia, uh, among the Greeks, and um, she has the potential to give birth to her counterpart, who is her male son, who becomes her consort. That male son is Deus, is the embodiment of light. So birth gives birth to light. And then the two of them together um, produce the, the gods that we know. Um, there is a, a strange story that this goes, and you, a lot of people don't like this. It, it upsets uh, a lot of people in our contemporary way of, of thinking. But their first child, there's two versions. One is that the Earth Mother produced two uh, twins, the Sky Father 
so to speak, the embodiment of light, personification of light, and the moon. And they were the primordial twins. But the first child between the Deus principle and the uh, terrestrial principle was the goddess Dawn. Now she was gorgeous and stunningly beautiful. And the father fell in love with the daughter. Um, now, in some versions, he rapes her. Other versions, she's uh, quite willing. Um, and they produce a child, and their child is the son. And so you end up with basically five proto-figures of, of basically original pantheon. And that would be the earth, light, uh, the sun, moon, and the dawn. And to that, they, they're already incorporated within that five is a, uh, are, the, are the twins of the Adeus and, and the moon. But they also reified the divine duality, the divine twins, and they were kind of, they overlapped with the primal five and they were also additional to the primal five. So the heart of what we could say is the Indo-European or proto-Indo-European pantheon is I've called it a heptathion. It's there's seven basic figures, and they're all nature oriented. They um, and this is where the Proto-Indo-European the, theology is, is a too clumsy a word, but for lack of a better one, I'll just say theological outlook corresponds to the Native American to uh, ancient Egyptian to uh, the peoples that we could identify as having this kind of nature-oriented pagan um, spirituality at, at their core, at their, at their original uh, understanding of the world in which they lived. And um, basically there's the whole, I learned this through Ake uh, Holtkrantz, uh, the Swedish I think it was an anthropologist. He did a whole study on Native Americans, and he discerned that they had a belief in in two souls. We each have two souls. We have a life soul, which is what animates the body, but we also have what is known as a dream soul or a free soul. The consciousness develops with the body soul, but when one sleeps or goes into shamanic trance, the consciousness uh, shifts from the life or body soul to the free or dream soul. So the experiences we have uh, in trance, in dream, uh, are uh, the times when our the consciousness has transferred to that particular soul. Uh, almost universal, and I found that almost all. Uh, indigenous peoples throughout the world had some sort of a concept of soul duality of these two souls. Basically, if the conscious, if consciousness did not reassimilate with the body soul when one ended trance or woke up from sleep, um, the person was kind of went mad in cultural social understandings and usually died within about six months. But so the normal thing, and especially for the shaman, is that reincorporation of the consciousness that has had its experiences in the dream soul, but back into the 
body soul. Salmon had a very definite social function that was to help, um, help cure, help bring back knowledge from the other world for the benefit of the tribe, for the community. A shaman could be both male or female. Some people had more male shamans and some had more female uh, shamans. But um, the shaman has this responsibility to the tribe, and it's also the duty to the tribe, which I think is partly which helps the shaman reincorporate uh, those otherworldly experiences into a practical applicability and to allow person, the shaman, to cogently function as as a person, not go insane, not die because of some split thing between the souls. So, uh, and I and apparently the general belief is that when one is about to die or at the time of death, that the consciousness of the body soul transfers permanently to the free soul and the free soul goes on to the other world with one's consciousness so in the whole concept of reincarnation it it makes sense to me to think of the free soul when when we when we're born and if we are a reincarnation we tend not to remember our earlier lives Unless we're Shirley MacLaine and some princess in Egypt or something like that. But um, I think what it is is that the departed life uh, consciousness becomes one's guardian spirit. And it's the guardian spirit, which is our free soul. When our present body dies, our consciousness will then merge with that free soul. So the free soul is constantly building up consciousnesses from from previous lives but the basic purpose of the free soul is to assist and uh, benefit the um, the life of the individual that it's being the guardian spirit for it at that particular time the so you you always have this kind of duality throughout all this uh, this kind of pagan uh, spirituality um, I talked about Deus and the moon being maybe the primordial twins. Well, the moon is emblematic ultimately of the, it's the food of the God. It's the Soma. Um, it's ambrosia. That's why the, the moon disappears because the gods are consuming the moon. And so the real duality is between humanity and, um, Let's let's say our psychedelic counterpart that is more at home in the other world, and the two of them constitute the core uh, notion behind proto-Indo-European duality. Of course, as the peoples, as the Indo-European peoples disseminated into the different areas, they developed their own pantheons, but they all can basically be uh, traced and descending as descending from this basic original proto-pantheon or the heptathion. And the moon is a deity, so the moon, while being consumed, regenerates? Is, is that sort of how the yeah, theory goes? Yeah, okay. exactly. So the moon's like a, the, the, the god Wolverine, like from the X-Men. It keeps healing. Right. And the moon is, uh, I mean, among the Greeks and the Romans, the moon was understood as female. 
among the uh, Baltic and Germanic peoples and basically the Indic peoples masculine. So it's one of those figures of the of the seven basic figures: the moon, um, fire, and um, and the counterpart of fire, which would be basic water. In some cases is male, in some cases is female. You have two that are pretty much always female, the earth and the dawn, and two that are pretty much always, well, no, the sun is the other one that can be female and male. Uh, but you have two that are basically um, male, that is the principle of life, the, the deus figure, and his primal embodiment, the figure of lightning. The weather god. Right. The, and which is interesting because, you know, you have the uh, cognates, um, you know, and then, you know, it's it's never been clear if Zeus and Thor or Zeus and Odin are, are sort of cognates, um, but they're both sort of serving the same function. And obviously, stories change and characters change as people move. But yes. I never realized until recently that Zeus came from Deus. Um, and I, I saw this other evolution of language from, I believe, a, a Proto-Indo-European language where father was like Pitter, and it, it moved on to Pater, to Vader, which, I mean, Darth Vader, sheesh, uh, to father. Um, you know, and you can sort of trace how the language uh, changes, but you can see the, the roots. Um, the roots. Yeah, and that, that was very interesting. I also, through this show, learned a little bit about uh, Chinese magic and Chinese uh, paganism, which, I mean, they're one and the same, really, uh, which is another thing I've learned is that magic and religion is, is often one and the same. Um, but they also had a dualism to begin with, which offshot into five essential elements, and there's a lot of commonality there. Now, I'm not trying to compare, you know, say these things also went further eastward as well, um, because I'm not that smart. Um, but it, it is interesting that there's sort of a lot of similarities everywhere. And, and there, the creation myth is so similar to the Greek creation myth, which is so similar to the Norse and Germanic creation myth, which is closer to the Indo-European one because of the cow. I mean, the 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 the, the cow is the bizarre part. There's often a giant and a cow and some type of sacrifice of body parts to create other things. But you know, you in in quite a few. You know, I guess it's not that bizarre because the cow was probably life. I mean, that was how humans lived on the cow. That that was that was your. That was your wealth. In that India, was everything. In India, the cow is referred to as mother very often. Oh, wow. And, and yeah, there it is. I mean, it's, yeah, between the cow and, and rain, though, those that, that probably explains why those were the two most important things. The milk, mm -hmm. food, and, and the rain for your water and the grass to, to feed the cow. Um, cow and, and there's your cycle. I have two questions for you. I'm not sure if, and these are sort of observations, which... I think are interesting. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're trite. Maybe they are. But um, I and somebody out there is going to get mad at me. But this is Garden of the Doom, so we we don't fear that. So it seems to me in the duality in a lot of the religions, the duality 
is gods and twins, you know, Isis and Osiris, Apollo and I think Athena or Artemis, and you know there were others. There's, there's Enlil and Inki, which uh, which uh, you know, but then there was a sister also. Anyway, that's not the important part. But it seems to me that in the Abrahamic religions, we sort of they sort of switch. The evolution is that the twins are not gods, but man, Adam and Eve. That that was those are your twins. Uh. Hey, hey, all right, where, where do you want to go with that? I don't know. If it, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Just when we were talking, it sort of struck me along with another thing, and then maybe you can figure out where to go with it or just say, no, nah, that's silly, Jeff. Oh. Um, but the other one was that in the, and that seems like the evolution to Christianity. I know that there's probably a bunch that people think are very significant, but in this context, it seems to me that the main difference is that when you when you got to a son of God in Christianity, He's not trying to kill his father, um, which, you know, is like all the other religions, like someone's either trying to kill the father or take over for the father. Um, and, you know, Jesus doesn't seem to be sort of merges with the father, but but not there's no killing. There's no patricide. There's no usurpation. So th- those are my two little, uh, you know, because I don't think there's that much difference between most pagan religions and most monotheistic religions, not as many as people would like to believe. Um, but I'm thinking those are two sort of major tweaks to the stories. All right. Basically, I think if you, if we're looking at the world's religions, there's, and, and these aren't really classifications. This is a, using the sociological tool known as the ideal type. And what, and how that works is there's an essential ideal. Uh, and we use it as a measuring device. And so we look at any given religion and which of the ideals does it conform the closest to? Where does it fall short from that ideal? And that then gives us the impetus to try to explain why it's different and how it's different. Um, But the basic four types would be the Abrahamic religion. So you have Judaism, Christianity, uh, Islam, Maybe some of Sikhism, but Sikhism is usually considered a Dharmic religion. And the, the primary two Dharmic religions are Hinduism and Buddhism. Um, paganism, I think, is a third type of religion. And, but you also have what we could call the secular religions. And basically all, all peoples take a position in trying to compare what they consider to be the Godhead or the divine, humanity, and the world, and what the relationship between them is. With your, the kind of the core thing with the Dharma religions is the, the world, physicality is an illusion. It's something that one endeavors to be free from, to escape from. And that's kind of a Gnostic position. It's, it's, uh, the Gnostic, and a lot of pagans are Gnostic as well. I mean, with paganism, there's, it's very hard to say, I mean, anyone who says they're pagan, that's basically all that is required. But there are many different types of pagans. Um, and I would, I basically distinguish between Gnostic pagans and Tuluric pagans. Tuluric pagans see the earth, see matter as, as real, as not something to escape from. But to something to celebrate, to uh, 
participate with, uh, to revere the earth, revere nature, um, and ultimately in, in our day and age to protect nature, to protect the environment, um, and stop this kind of uh, destruction that we're we're doing, and we're actually killing our own mother. Uh, Gnostic paganism and Gnostic religion in itself basically sees us as being created by some transcendent mind, some transcendent consciousness, and there's kind of an evolutionary or a chain of being in which matter and our being incorporated in matter is, is the lowest on the, on the ladder. And the, the basic purpose in Gnosticism is to free oneself from the illusion of matter or the entanglement of matter and to re-emerge with the primordial one. And so your Abrahamic religions are, are essentially Gnostic in, in that sense. Uh, some of the pagan religions are. Um, the difference between basically the what I would call the Telluric pagan tradition and secularism is that um, they both accept this life, focus on this world, maybe the here and now, maybe the future as well. But um, they the difference between the two is that in paganism there is this sense or understanding of magic, of enchantment, of wonder as some, almost something uh, that exists in addition. It's the other world. It's the twin of us in the other world. And um, and it works with that. It, with secular thing, religion, there's no supernatural. It's denied. Um, the whole focus is this world. And, and so pagans can relate to uh, humanism and even agnosticism and even atheism uh, on that basis of at least we're both sharing uh, an understanding of the importance, if not sacredness, of the earth, of nature, of physicality, of tangibility, and so forth. Um, with, all right, there's... Christianity kind of reversed the succession myth in that, in a sense, Jesus Christ, I mean, of course, the church councils identified God the Father and God the Son as part of one being. But, and again, there still is the sacrifice. In this case, it's the Son that gets sacrificed rather than the Father. Um, but then you have, in the whole progression of thing, things, it's Islam is really restoring the Father. It sees Christianity and Christ as kind of the usurper son who to some degree succeeds in Christianity. It's, it's, it's a different uh, formulation than Judaism. And Islam is kind of the restoration of the primacy of the Father and the elimination of the Son. So I see that kind of succession theme at work, each being interpreted in, in different respects by the cultures. And uh, and then, of course, within these different these four different blocks, you have every kind of uh, splintering reinterpretation. Uh, so 
the Abrahamic religions are, well, I don't know if they exceed paganism, paganism in, in diversity, but there's much more, I think because of the Abrahamic God as being something that's other than uh, our earth, other than nature, um, I see it basically as a negative concept. And um, the um, it has it has certainly it's very powerful, but it, that negative concept at the heart of these Abrahamic religions, you have this entity uh, Jehovah, um, Allah, God, whatever he's called. But there's a divisiveness in that figure, and that's why I think those. I mean, even in Islam, you have the feud between Sunni and Shia. Uh, Christianity had the feud between Protestants and Catholics, and within the Protestant denominations, there's even more uh, dissension and divergence. Um, so it's, I think that kind of uh, dynamic that you find in the Abrahamic religions uh, kind of is the consequence of the type of thing that they exalt as divinity. Celebrate the holiday season with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. Join us at the Joseph Meyerhoff Symphony Hall for festive performances throughout the month of December, including Home Alone in Concert, a Cirque Holiday Soiree with Troop Vertigo, and the annual Holiday Spectacular featuring the Tap Dancing Santas. Visit bsomusic.org today to find the perfect holiday concert for you and your family. All December long with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. That's bsomusic.org. The reasons to treat yourself to a frozen drink from Mickey D's go on and on and on. It's more than a drink. It's a Mickey D's drink. Your new flavor craze is here. From sweet and fruity frozen Fanta Wild Cherry to the classic cool of a frozen Coca-Cola to the tasty and tart frozen Fanta Blue Raspberry. Get any size for $1.59. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. ba da ba 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 and that's quite different than, well, it's different than Abrahamic. Of course, you don't have an exaltation of divinity as such for the secular things. But the pagan thing is primarily, even when you have Gnostic pagans, they still cherish nature, which still cherish the earth and to a degree tangibility. Uh, they may still see that one has to escape from it, but, but there still is the valuing of that. And so there's, more implicit harmony, uh, at least potentially, uh, between the divergences of paganism uh, than we have been able to uh, witness historically, at least, with the Abrahamic religions. Now, whether that answered any of, <laughs> of your issues. I'm not sure if it did or if it didn't, but it was very interesting. I know very little about Islam, and that's you know that's on my list of things to do and experts to find. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess beget guess, and and I, you know, and and sometimes guess beget beget guess that put me into diversions, uh, you know, onto different paths. But I'll get there. So, and, and it never occurred to me that, that Islam was might be, you know, at a, you know, at some core, the 
re retaking of power from the by the father figure because you're right oh, yeah. most christians say they say jesus they, they you know i mean uh, you know as synonymous with with god so it is a it, maybe it's a more genteel um usurpation than than say uh you know um castrating your father and sending him to tartarus but uh that's interesting um we didn't talk about the twin thing as as you know maybe adam and eve being human versions of the twins i'm not sure how important that is i'm not even sure if i'm right on that um but i'll give you a moment if you want to comment on that if not we can move on to sort of uh you know uh you know uh, paganism and and you know i guess a comparative paganism or wherever you were going to go next all right. Well, Adam and Eve, uh, I suppose they could be considered twins. I mean, she she is um, created out of his Adam's rib. Um, the I think the primordial twins are usually brothers, but then at various at various points and in different cultures, they become a, a brother and a sister, as with Apollo and Artemis. Probably an earlier understanding of the well, the divine twins in in uh, in Greece are Castor and Pollux, Pollux or Pollux, uh, those two. But uh, even more fundamentally behind that would be Apollo and Dionysus uh, operate as probably early uh, instances of the uh, divine twin concept. Um, Adam and Eve are. Yeah, usually, at least with the Indo-Europeans, you, the primal human figure is Manu for the uh, uh, for the Vedics, and I think it's the uh, the same with the uh, um, the Persians, the Iranians. Uh, Manus, I think, among the uh, Scandinavians and the Nordics, and the twin is the as uh, like with Castor and, and Pollux, is the one who dies. Yama, he becomes the lord of the underworld. Uh, Yama's equivalent, Yama means twin, and uh, the primordial giant killed by the gods to create the world in this, in this Scandinavian mythology is Ymir, which also means twin. Right. So they're, they're both uh, cognates. And so that was the probably the earlier idea is that uh, our humanity is both this worldly and is exemplified basically with our mind almost a personification of the mind and and then wisdom but also the uh our being after this world in the other world and the two were considered the their twins they um Sometimes they feud as uh, Romulus and Remus did, uh, and they were trying to contest over who who had the right to Roma, the goddess. Um, and so sometimes the the one of the brothers kills the other brother, and that's what puts the other brother in the other world as the as the other being. But sometimes it, it happens uh, not through the uh, through the one brother, but the other one, one dies for various uh, reasons. But there's usually a love between the two uh, at, at heart. The Castor Polis, you have a Roman duality and you have the uh, Dioscuric duality. And 
one is more harmonious than the other, but uh, those are later developments. Didn't so, Zeus, Poseidon, yeah. and, and Hades just sort of draw straws? They're really originally the same being. Um, Poseidon probably means Poseidon, Lord, and on Earth, Lord of the Earth. Well, that's that's exactly what Zeus is. And Hades, uh, he, there is a Greek term, uh, Zeus, Catathonius, uh, Zeus of the Underworld. And so it's really... Um, it's the ubiquity of the Deus figure, but functionally and ultimately then reified into separate mythological beings is what we have with, with the Greeks. But again, you know, uh, you were talking, the Deus figure among the uh, Romans is, is Jupiter. And the Jew, the, the Jew part comes from the same root of Deus and Dias among the Vedics and, and so forth. And then you have just the, the pater principle added to the name. So you have Jupiter, but you also have Zeus pater and, and so forth. Dias pater among the Vedics. That's wild. In, all right. Interestingly then, all right, I'll just throw this part out. Um, the cognate of Zeus, Jupiter, Dias among the Nordic peoples is Tyr or Tiwas among the Germanic speaking peoples and he was he was originally a weather god he's the, the god of light and sky but in among the nordic peoples uh he's demoted or overthrown really by odin odin is kind of a figure there's a whole school of thought now developing on the idea that odin came with the aristocratic conquerors that came from the south and basically took over the the northlands where uh, Tor, Tor is really an offshoot, like Indra is a, an offshoot of the sky figure, more directly connected with the weather and with thunder and lightning. Um, but then with, when Odin then is being exalted in the north, um, probably rather forcefully at first, um, it's a later figure. One of the things that, uh, when I did my book, The Divine versus the Assyrian, the thing that I was able to uncover was you had the gods, the, the deities, the devas, the divine, uh, but opposed to them is the, is the whole principle of chaos, of uh, nothingness, of the void. You have a similar type of thing uh, among the uh, Mesopotamians, where you have the uh, Tiamat, who is a personification of chaos, a female personification, who wants to destroy the gods because they're making too much noise and are disturbing her peace and, and so forth. Um, among the Indo-Europeans, they have that same kind of a, a divide in which uh, chaos or nothingness tries to uh, destroy the gods. Usually that nothingness is personified as a dragon, and so the, one of the fundamental myths of the uh, Proto-Indo-Europeans is the Deus principle subduing the dragon is uh, and establishing the order of nature, of light, of uh, divinity over the void or chaos uh, of nothingness. And so you 
you see that existing through many of the different Indo-European daughter cultures. Um, and you know, there was something else that was going to happen. I've lost it. So Odin always seemed to me, and this might be the kid in me and when I was discovering these things, but Odin always seemed to me more as like almost like a Gandalf figure or a Merlin figure, more Celtic than Norse warrior. Is it possible that there's the Celtic sort of the Druidical influence and, and those were the Southern influences that, that took over? Because I, I was aware of the Tur thing. I just thought that they, tra- you know, Tur became the god of war in Norse mythology. And, yeah, you know, yeah. you know um, and, he, he's also the, the real ethical principle because he, he sacrificed his hand. All right, so you, uh, in this battle between the Deus figure and the dragon, there's a point where the dragon uh, overcomes the deus figure. Um, among the Hittite weather god, he, uh, I think he steals, steals his heart. Um, among uh, Zeus loses his sinews. Uh, another, another one, he's lost his, his eyes. And so, the, as the myth completes, eventually even the deus figure regains his missing parts. It's kind of like Nuada among among the the Irish. Uh, He loses his arm, and so he's no longer the, can be the king of the Tuatha de Danon until he has an arm restored, either his silver arm or one of the physicians actually restores his living arm. Then he becomes a king again. So in the completion of that myth, um, the deus figure regains his uh, missing part, Indra, who runs from Vitra the dragon, regains his courage and ultimately comes back and combats and is a victor, is ultimately the victor in that situation. But there's a temporary dismemberment of the divine figure. Um, it's not just a total ascendancy. It has its setback and it has to regain its own strength. Now, I think it's Terry Gunnell from University of Iceland is the one who basically traces the importation of the Odinic figure from the South. But the South was were basically Celtic people, so there might be a Celtic connection there, whether Odin is actually Celtic or not. But the interesting thing is, uh, Tyr, who would, who would have been originally the deus figure king of the gods in the North, has been demoted. He's he's lost his hand, so he can't be uh, the uh, the divine leader. But and so it's a, a temporary usurpation by the forces of chaos, which I think Odin represents. Uh, but the myth has never been completed, and so you don't have the restoration of Tyr. You still have the dragon on the throne with the Odinic complex. I know this is controversial. Uh, but it's how I see it when you do a real comparative mythological uh, study. So if the Germanic and Norse myths are the truth, then we're still waiting for a reckoning from Tyr, and things are going to change. Yeah, hopefully. And I think that's probably part of our problem, is and why we're out of balance with, with nature, we're, why we're out of balance with the Earth, because we're... We don't have the proper 
understanding the proper uh, valuing as we would if we were more connected to our ancestral roots to uh, to the understanding of value and divinity of the world of nature of physicality of matter something that you said early on in your presentation when you were talking about your trajectory was that you agreed to head the astrology department but not not that it was me um you know discussed this fact but to how it influences things and the, and the the funny thing is I don't know. I didn't know anything about astrology. I mean, you know, uh, you know, people, you know, I knew that there were more than one zodiac. I didn't exactly know why. And, you know, and people got their fortunes and I hear things like, you know, retrograde and this and that and the other thing. Uh, but through the course of doing this show, I've been introduced to it, sometimes not even expecting to be introduced to it. And now I, I, and luckily I now understand exactly what you mean by that. Um, because a lot of these stories, the, you know, I, I mean, people will say that the stars told the people the stories in form. I think the people looked to the stars and, you know, built this, you know, retrofitted the stories into the stars and it helped to keep track of things. But what I think really is important, I just, is that sort of the approach that you took at a very high level, um, in, in heading that department? Basically, yes. I, I mean, I wasn't trying to prove astrology. Uh, I was just trying to study how people, how their behavior is modified or influenced by their belief in the stars. Um, so you have to, you know, you have to look at the particular astrological systems. Now you have a sidereal system and you have a, trop a tropical system and they're slightly, they're similar, but they're slightly out of sync. And so in India, you, you have one system in, in Europe and America, uh, you have a, a different uh, system. They, I don't know why it works. I think, I think culturally, we learn to understand what various configurations are supposed to mean. So uh, me being a Virgo, somebody, uh, Ava Gardner being a Capricorn, um, whether we're conscious of it or not, we, I think culturally we're influenced by the cultural expectation of how the stars are supposed to influence our behaviors. Um, I don't know if that's something that even could be proved, but, um, but again, it's how people react. Now in the, in the sixties, uh, before you even often exchanged names with someone you met, you asked, what was their sign? And it was a way of exchanging a lot of information with somebody else on, a, on an immediate basis. It was fascinating how it worked. And uh, it was kind of the, the lingua franca of hmm. the day. Um, it's been, of course, astrology has, has been put down by empirical science. Um, I learned astrology initially um, as a as it's as based on empirical observations and I had when I was at San Francisco State getting my MA degree um, there was a kind of a method a scientific methodology I called it a brainwashing course but it was Gerald Lestrucci was the uh, professor and 
basically we were learning what scientific methodology involved the methodological approach, the value neutrality, um, the objectivity, objectivity, and so forth. And I asked Dr. Ristrucci at one point, I said, astrology is, uh, claims to be uh, based empirically on observation. Does that allow it to become potentially a science? And he said, absolutely. Um, and so that's, that helped me then understand method, methodology, and I'm very comfortable with it. Now, that all being said, when I became then the head of this uh, cultural astronomy and astrology department at Boston University, um, most of the students were astrologers. And I realized through them that they basically are platonic in the sense that they have this understanding of a system which is then applied to what they uh, what they see and they interpret behavior in that pre-established system so it's not something that's being based strictly on observation it's more applicability of some kind of external in this case let's say platonic uh, framework and so I of course I had a lot of trouble with that and um, but that's the way I think astrology basically operates in our world today. It used to be taught in universities up until maybe 17th century. I think in Spain was one of the last uh, universities to actually teach astrology. Um, part of the idea of formulating that department in Baspa um, was to reestablish astrology as a, from an academic point of view. Popular astrology, what you read in the horoscopes and the newspapers and whatnot, um, it works in the sense that it makes a lot of people wealthy. Uh, I wondered why, when, among the students I had, a lot of them were professional astrologers, and the thing was that they made good livings from it either writing horoscope columns or doing horoscopes for various clients. Uh, so there was money behind it. Um, and uh, so it's it's a phenomenon that's part of our society. It doesn't necessarily fit with our agnostic, atheistic, scientific um, prevalent framework, but it's still there. And uh, people have this need for this kind of counter belief systems. Uh, another thing with that being said is that I have found that the prognosis system, you can go to Indonesia and they can feel the bumps on your head. Or I had a, a palmist read my palm in Laguna Beach uh, once and I had another one from India read my palm. And whatever system is used, they usually come up with the same sort of, of analysis and they tell you the same thing. So it's almost as if something is there and these different formulations, whether it's astrology or uh, the bump reading or palmistry, they access whatever it is from, through a different route, but they come up with the, to the same uh, conclusions. And I don't know how to explain that. Yeah. I just find it fascinating. I was going to ask that, but that's a fair enough answer. 
Um, you used uh, two words, sidereal and another word. What What's the difference prop, between... Prop, prop, prop. Uh, let's see if I can explain that. One, the sidereal is, basic, is based on the movement of the stars. And so there's the precession of the equinoxes. And the uh, tropical is taking the Earth as the basis. So when you do a horoscope, well, I guess that, that's true in both systems, but what they're trying to establish is uh, it takes you as the center of the cosmos, or at least the center of, the, of our solar system, and plots the position of the planets and the angle that they form using to you as, as a triangle. So that's whether it's a square or an opposition or a conjunction, um, it's taking you as the very center. Um, with the uh, tropical system, it's... Celebrate the holiday season with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. Join us at the Joseph Meyerhoff Symphony Hall for festive performances throughout the month of December, including Home Alone in Concert, a Cirque Holiday Soiree with Troop Vertigo, and the annual Holiday Spectacular featuring the Tap Dancing Santas. Visit bsomusic.org today to find the perfect holiday concert for you and your family. All December long with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. That's bsomusic.org. As we get older, we start to notice our parents could use a little help. Help with grocery shopping, getting to appointments, and just keeping up with things around the house. For the times when we can't be there, Care.com makes it easy to find senior caregivers who live nearby and know just how to help. And since all caregivers at Care.com are background checked, you can be confident that your mom or dad is getting support from someone you can trust. Find senior caregivers for your parents at Care.com. The sky is divided up between, you know, the different 12 zodiacal signs. Um, but there is a procession of the equinoxes. And so they actually, those signs have shifted. The tropical system doesn't take in on board that shift, whereas the sidereal, since it's focused on the stars themselves, has shifted. So Aries is slightly uh, out of sync with the Aries that we understand. Capricorn is out of sync. They're all out of sync. Do, do, um maybe 10 degrees or something like that. So you would think that that would um, influence, uh, it would give you a different interpretation. They tend to come up somehow, uh, I guess there's some kind of an automatic built-in compensation uh, factor that operates in there, but they come up with basically the same types of analyses, the same type of predictions, uh, that sort of thing. Do they all have... Uh 12? Um, oh, yes. Okay. Yes. See, I, I wonder about that because, you know, I, I've heard about the, you know, the the argument that there's a 13th constellation and somebody even said there should be a 14th. And, you know, you just do the math. You do, you know, the phases of the moon is 28 days. So, you know, that leaves another, you know, four weeks, you know, that that's 48 weeks and the year is 52 weeks, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the the one that I understand that got kicked out is, I always say it wrong, but it's basically the serpent bearer, and our serpent is always the bad guy, right? The, the serpent's the bad guy, even in the proto-European one, the three-headed serpent was like the, the first villain, um, yeah. also to represent woman, which, <laughs> I mean, I guess that's a, that's another story altogether, um, or maybe it isn't, but uh, uh 
I, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly where I'm going with this, but did, did, oh, why is it that everybody kicked out the, 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 the poor serpent and, and, you know, the, the guy who supplanted is me, the, the Scorpio, which is like uh, in the sky for like seven days, not, not even close to like 28 days, or so I understand it. Well, no, I don't know if that part's true, but okay. the, uh, my family, uh, I mean, they were really militant feminists, and they were screaming and ranting and raving the fact that uh, the patriarchal society had uh, eliminated the 13th sign, Arachne, the spider, and that was the, the put down of the female. And my counter to them, I said, you want, I mean, if you look at astrology, it's 12 signs, six male signs, six female signs. It's, it's a balanced concept. It's a balanced understanding. But because of your militant feminism, you want to unbalance that balance and bring in a 13th sign. So you have seven female signs and only six male signs. Uh, that did quiet them down. They never brought that one up again. But um, So what you're saying is that I am a, I am a militant feminist. That is the first yeah. time. That's probably the yeah. first time anyone's ever said, you know, it's cool. Uh, this is the... Right. This is the okay. 21st well, century. Well, I'm, I'm okay with that. Why not? Why not? Yeah, why not? See, see, world, I told you I'm progressive. <laughs> what was that? I, I'm saying, see, world, I told you I was progressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, that's a, I'm entirely okay with that. Um, <laughs> anyway, I, yeah, I'm going to stop myself right here uh, on that. So, okay. Um, I probably sidetracked you off something with the astrology thing. Um, I, I guess I want to tie the... Telluric paganism in with, is that like more similar to what, or similar to what we would call animistic paganism? Yes, it certainly includes animism. But Telluric, Telluric is, is from Telus, uh, meaning it's the Latin word for earth. And so it's, it's, the Telluric paganism is the earth centered, earth is the origin, or matter is the origin, nature is the origin. Uh, it's not seen as something created by some transcendent mind. Consciousness is something that evolves from the matter-energy complex. It, it's not something that created it. it it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's an evolutionary development. And perhaps we, you know, ultimately move into a purely uh, a mental realm. I mean, if we destroy ourselves on Earth, do we still exist in the cosmos? That's a possibility. But it, when we're talking about origins, um, our consciousness and, and then our collective consciousness is something that has developed as um, life, matter, animation. All those things have developed uh, through uh, the progress of, of nature uh, creating um, more and more differentiated forms of reflection, which I think is what consciousness ultimately comes down to. So if you think about our evolutionary process, uh, as we you have the, your animal kingdom, and within the animal kingdom you have humanity, maybe dolphins and porpoises, and maybe a few other uh, species develop what we would call consciousness or a kind of a mental reflection. Um, but when we are injured, we go into uh, um, a coma. Um, we have been reduced essentially to a vegetative state. 
And so that's a kind of a lower evolutionary state. But then when we, if we then die, we are reduced even further to a mineral state. But I see that as mineral bliss. I see that it's, it's not consciousness. We become just pure matter and the bliss of matter. There's not pain. Uh, there's not really even pleasure as, as we know it in, in our physical sense, but, uh, we're in a pure primordial state of, of bliss. As we develop consciousness, we become more acutely aware of the differentiation between pleasure and pain. And that's part of what consciousness is, is to discern those different states of, of being. But I say it all as kind of organically interconnected. Um, whether the free soul continues with a consciousness on in the other world on another dimension, whatever that's that's one possibility. But if we just decompose back into matter, uh, we decompose back into a blissful transconscious state of being. So I see them both as positives. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, or we are stardust. Either way, it works, right? Yes, yes. It's all all part of the the cycle as how it's supposed to be. Um, What should I ask you that I haven't asked you? Where are we today? Where is this world going? (laughs) Um, And I'm not sure. I mean, I'm in, I'm in my final years of life. I've had a wonderful life, and I really am utterly grateful and thankful for what I've been able to experience, the loved ones I've had, and, and all that. And so, in a sense, um, I don't know how much more what I can do to actually help this world. And as you get to this point, there's a sort of a, a divine or blissful detachment um, it seems to me that if we could actually connect between all our different selves and our different cultures and our different perspectives or outlooks, recognize what we have in common and how dependent we are on this planet uh, for our very existence, for our very being, um, if there was somehow we could operate on that basis, and I'm not sure how we can with the types of uh, super states we have and the bureaucracies that we have and the uh, military conflicts and buildups that we have, but it seems to me that there's we're, we have to be on a verge of some sort of collective awakening, uh, whether these protests in Iran and uh, uh, where, where are some of the other ones? Uh, if, if those will, uh, I guess Pakistan at this point, if that type of a spirit can become more global, and I think for me, my spirituality, my pagan spirituality, uh, supports that. We, it's a belief in magic, in the possibility that there is something that we need that is not right within our empirical grasp but may be influential and helpful at the same time. We have to do the physical work to create a, a different consciousness, a prevailing consciousness. And I think that's 
that's the task. Uh, I think one of the reasons why paganism has been reborn in our times, uh, at least in the West, uh, when as as you grow older and your parents reach their end of their days, you start to appreciate them maybe in ways that you hadn't when you were younger. You, you might you love them, yes, but you take them for granted when you realize they're not going to last that much longer. There is a a much deeper mindfulness and uh, and care for the parent. And I think that's what's happening collectively on the planet with what we're doing with the Earth. The Earth is reaching, maybe the Earth won't die as we know it, but as a as the source of our life, and as, and as Gaia that, that we know. No, it um, will die as we know it. It won't die. Yes. Well, uh, eventually it will anyhow. Yes. Well, sure. Will. But, but in our own time, and then within later in this century, we're going to be really in a in a, in a really difficult place. Um, I think that our witnessing that is part of why there is this rebirth of a, a spirituality that really is grounded in nature, values and, and, and reveres nature, and wants to protect the natural balance of nature. Right. I probably should have asked this earlier before we got into that because that was actually actually a pretty good closing thought train. Um, but how similar or different are the proto-pagan beliefs or pagan beliefs from, let's just say, the steppe Central Asia into Europe as to the First Nations of North and South America? Oh, I see, I see them as... Very similar. They had different uh, reifications of, of, of divinity or god, god, gods or whatnot. But they, they're both grounded in physicality, in the in the elements, in nature, um, and they. I, mean, I think the Native American in, in it. So well, they. They did some, had made some ecological mistakes, and I guess they deforested uh, and they killed a lot of the, the buffalo or bison. Uh, so there was some, someone can make a case that they weren't perfect, but they certainly were much better than than we had been. And um, we, we are just <laughs> yeah, <wrong. laughs> I mean, kill the bison, say, hold my beer, you know. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, we completed the, that task, and we, um, I mean, we destroyed many of the forests, as, as the as British did in, in Ireland and Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, but I think if we look at our ancestors, and again, there there was much more of a shared valuing of, of things that. They shared with Native Americans, with indigenous peoples throughout the world. Give me a song that should be our outro. I, I, I've used Share the Land before, so I can't use it again. I feel like the song, The Love and Spoonful, I think it is, the Do You Believe in Magic, seems a little trite. Uh, what, what, what song do you think I should use for this one? Ooh, that's, it has to have words. Ah. Uh, it doesn't have to, but, you know, I think if there's no words and no tune, people will just skip it. <laughs> so. 
Which is not that important. They've already come to the end, so I mean, it's all right. I mean, uh, my favorite piece of music is Ravel's Daphnis and Chloe, and there aren't words. They are there is singing, but it's it's dance. It's a dance, and I think that's that's what we have to learn to do is to dance with each other, to dance with life, dance with nature, and uh, I get often tired with a lot of the pagan chants because they're they're boring, they're repetitive, and if you go to an evangelical uh, church, um, their music is much more exciting and engaging. And I think uh, pagan, contemporary Western paganism misses a lot of that. Um, I I really love the Daphnis and Chloe. It's it's a beautiful story, and it just it, it just engages with nature and with dance. Right, well, who am I to who am I to reject this this one simple request for an outro? So, uh, anyway, I, fascinating conversation. I understood most of it. Um, not that I fully grasped all of it, but I haven't studied my entire life on this. Um, thank you so much for being on. You're welcome anytime. Um, I hope this was a pleasant enough experience for you, and I'm glad we got the technology to work. And I think, oh, yeah. <laughs> Is there anything that you want to promote? I know that you're looking forward to having your books possibly published this year, but is there this is a free the book is going to be the book is called Matter Matters, and the subtitle I think is uh, a end of life perspective on paganism. Um, it probably will come out with Amazon. I think that's where we're where, where we're headed, but um, um, I don't know how to promote it. That's something else, but. But anyhow, it's been a pleasure to, to converse with you, Jeff, and I've enjoyed this very, very much. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. One way to promote us is guesting on podcasts, and there's lots of podcasts that are esoteric, and a lot of them are bigger than mine. But, you know, once you start listening to some, the, the algorithm will give you searches for others, and you can sort of see their reach and pick and choose. So that may be a good way to do it. And who, who doesn't want a, a university professor? Um that's also a, a pagan on their show. I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, it's 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 like a Las Vegas buffet. It's amazing. So, um, anyway, matter matters. Look for it on Amazon. Thank you once again for coming to Garden of the Doom. And folks, check out his stuff. It's Professor Michael York. Um, and hopefully, we'll hear from you again next week, or you'll hear from us again. More importantly, in the Garden of Doom.
Oh, I hate turkey hunting. I'm freezing. Me too. It feels like 25 below. 25? Did you know you can get up to 25% off grocery store prices at BJ's Wholesale Club? Up to 25% off? BJ sounds perfect for Thanksgiving shopping. They have really good turkey prices too. Then what are we freezing our bleeps off out here for? Let's go to BJ's. Get a Butterball Whole Turkey for just 99 cents a pound. In club or BJ's.com. BJ's. Absurdly simple savings. Lucky Land Slots. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.